MSW Media. Thanks to Aura Frames for supporting the Daily Beans. Aura Frames makes Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that beautifully showcase your photos and videos. To get $30 off the perfect holiday gift today, visit AuraFrames.com slash Daily Beans and use promo code Daily Beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Tuesday, December 5th, 2023. Today, somebody named Doug Burgum has dropped out of the Republican race for president. Venezuelans have voted to take over a large portion of oil-rich Guyana. A former career diplomat is charged with spying for Cuba for decades. A new filing in the case of Taylor Taranto shows the government's opposition to his motion to suppress evidence. A Remington gun factory in New York is scheduled to shut down. And the economy is remarkably strong. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hi, everyone. Happy Tuesday. Dana is out on a well-deserved vacation, practicing some self-care. I'm very, very glad that she's doing that. But I do miss her, but she will be back in your ears shortly. I will be taking you through the news today. Pardon my voice. It is a little raspy. I must confess, I went to a Me First and the Gimme Gimme's concert last night. And so now I've been hooping and hollering. And so my voice is a little bit raspy. But what an amazingly fun time. If you haven't had the occasion to see Me First and the Gimme Gimme's live or hear their amazing music, do yourself the favor. All right, we have a lot of news to get to today. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. First up from the Associated Press, a former career American diplomat was charged Monday with serving as a secret agent for communist Cuba going back decades in what prosecutors portrayed as one of the most brazen and long running betrayals in the history of U.S. Foreign Service. Manuel Roca wept as he sat handcuffed in Miami federal court on charges that he engaged in clandestine activity on Cuba's behalf since at least 1981. This is all right around the time of the Lawyers, Guns, and Money podcast, by the way. If you're not listening to Lawyers, Guns, and Money, it's all out. You can binge it now. It's all out there. It is perfect for holiday travel binging. It is absolutely bonkers. And it is it is narrated by my first movie crush, <laughs> Mr. John Cryer. It's absolutely fascinating. But this guy had been doing this since 81, the year he joined the U.S. Foreign Service, including by meeting with Cuban intelligence operatives and providing false information to U.S. government officials about his contacts. The complaint is short on specifics about how Roca may have assisted Cuba, but it provides a vivid case study of what American officials say are longstanding efforts by Cuba and its notoriously sophisticated intelligence service to target U.S. government officials who can be flipped. Quote, this action exposes one of the highest reaching and longest lasting infiltrations of the United States government by a foreign agent. That was Attorney General Merrick Garland in a statement to betray that trust by falsely pledging loyalty to the United States while serving a foreign power is a crime that will be met with the full force of the Justice Department. The 73 year old Roca, whose two decade career as a U.S. diplomat included top posts in Bolivia, Argentina, and the U.S. interest section in Havana. He was arrested by the FBI at his Miami home on Friday. He was ordered held following Monday's brief court appearance pending a bond hearing Wednesday. The Justice Department did not reveal how he attracted the attention of Cuba's intelligence operatives, nor did it describe what, if any, sensitive information he may have provided while working for the State Department and in a lucrative post-government career that included a stint as a special advisor to the commander of U.S. Southern Command. And who better to discuss this story than one of the best spy hunters in American history, Mr. Pete Strzok. He and I will go over this case in detail on the bonus episode of Clean Up on Aisle 45 this weekend for patrons. By the way, we just recorded tomorrow's episode, public episode of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It is absolutely my favorite episode of the podcast by far. It's, I had so, I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed making it. 
So check it out. Clean up on hour 45 tomorrow. If you haven't started listening, today's the day. Be a good one. Next up from ABC. Doug Burgum dropped out of the 2024 Republican presidential, prim- Republican presidential primary. His campaign announced that on Monday. In community after community along this journey, we witnessed the best that America has to offer. We are deeply grateful for each and every person who supported us with their ideas, prayers, advocacy, encouragement, and enthusiasm. That's what Burgum said in a statement. The North Dakota governor had emphasized three key issues on the trail, the economy, energy, and national security, but failed to gain any traction with GOP voters. He was polling last on the list of major candidates tracked by 538's national average and did not qualify for the most recent primary debate. So he wasn't there. He was in the first one. I remember him being in the first one. Burgum's exit narrows the field yet again as rivals like Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley pitch themselves as viable alternatives, alternatives to former President Trump. The front runner, despite his many legal troubles and controversies. In his statement, Burgum, a former software executive before entering politics, said he began his campaign clear-eyed about our mission, bring a business leader and proven governor's voice to the fight for the best of America. He said he was proud of how the messaging had, in his view, focused the 2024 conversation on the essential core responsibilities of the president. Uh, It didn't really do that for anybody. Yeah. Sorry. And he he's proud, I guess, that 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 his messaging focused on that, but it didn't really impact anybody else's messaging. Do you know what I mean? Senior staff found out he was going to drop out this weekend following his last visit to New Hampshire, where Burgum appeared emotional while speaking at events. He will pay his staff until the end of December. On Saturday, Burgum addressed a room full of voters at a county GOP meeting in Amherst, New Hampshire. By the way, the Republicans in New Hampshire just put forward a bill to ban abortion after 15 days. Days, not weeks. So anyway, when he was in that room in New Hampshire, there wasn't a single person in the room that said they planned to vote for him. Uh, The consensus remained that their admiration for Burgum would not turn into support for him as the nominee. Voters instead said they were looking at candidates like Haley and DeSantis. Overall, members showed up to pay their party's dues and chat with, quote, a respectable, nice guy. That's as one person put it. Youch. Okay, so Burgum's out. Pence dropped out. I mean, that was a while ago, but it's just, it's, I forgot. (laughs) Up next, a gun factory in upstate New York will close in March, according to a report in the Utica Observer Dispatch. In a letter sent to union officials on Thursday, Rem Arms said it did not arrive at the decision lightly. The factory employs 270 people and has filed for bankruptcy twice since 2018. The union urged the company to reconsider the decision in a statement. Quote, this announcement is a slap in the face, the union said. The simple fact is that REM Arms will never be able to match the experience and dedication of the workers in central New York, who for generations worked in this plant and kept this company alive. Remington is the the country's oldest gun maker and has produced firearms since 1816. The company paid families of the Sandy Hook shooting victims $73 million last year after firearms produced by the plant were used by the shooter. Up next from CNN, Venezuelans voted by a wide margin on Sunday to approve the takeover of an oil-rich region in the neighboring Guiana. The latest escalation in a long-running territorial dispute between the two countries, fueled by the recent discovery of vast offshore energy sources. Mm-hmm. The area in question, the densely forested, uh, es- I think it's Essequibo region, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Let me know if I'm not. That amounts to about two-thirds of Guyana's national territory, and it's roughly the size of Florida. Sunday's largely symbolic referendum asked voters if they agreed with creating a Venezuelan state in that region, providing its population with Venezuelan citizenship, and incorporating that state into a map of Venezuelan territory. I don't think you can just vote to take a giant chunk especially the oil-rich chunk of somebody else's country. Uh, It seems mm, not like a, mm, I don't know. But in a news conference announcing preliminary results from the first tranche of counted votes, the Venezuelan National Electoral Council said voters chose yes more than 95% of the time on each of five questions on the ballot. It's unclear what steps Venezuela's government would take to enforce its claim, Venezuela has long claimed the land, which it argues was within within its borders during the Spanish colonial period. 
It dismissed an 1899 ruling by international arbitrators that set the current boundaries when Guyana was still a British colony. And Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro had cast the referendum in an anti-imperialist sentiment on social media. Okay. All right. Anti-imperialism. Now, Guyana has called the move a step towards annexation and an existential threat. Last week, Guyanese president Irfan Ali visited troops in Essequibo and dramatically hoisted a, a Guyanese flag on a, on a mountain overlooking the border with Venezuela. Like, hey, hey, it's us. We're here. It, <laughs> no country, no flag, no country. Can't have one. International Court of Justice, based in The Hague, ruled before the vote that Venezuela shall refrain from taking any action which would modify the situation that currently prevails in the territory in dispute. It plans to hold a trial in the spring on the issue following years of review and decades of failed negotiations. Venezuela does not recognize the court's jurisdiction on the issue. So what happens next? The vote's result was widely expected within Venezuela, although its practical implications are likely to be minimal. Uh, with the creation of a Venezuelan state within the Essequibo to, is a remote, very remote possibility. It's unclear what steps the Venezuelan government would take to follow through on the result, and any attempt to assert a claim would certainly be met with uh, international resistance. Still, the escalating rhetoric has prompted troop movements in the region and saber-rattling in both countries, drawing comparisons for Guyanese leaders to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Many residents in the predominantly indigenous region are reportedly on edge. The long-standing row over the border between Guyana and Venezuela has risen to a level of unprecedented tension in the relations between our countries. That's Guyanese Foreign Minister Robert Persaud, or Persaud. He said that Wednesday in America's Quarterly. Even without implementing the referendum, which would require a further constitutional step and is likely use of force, Maduro may stand to gain politically from the vote, amid a challenging re-election campaign. It's probably, hopefully, a political stunt that will not be acted upon. In October, the Venezuelan opposition showed rare momentum after rallying around Maria Corina Machado, a center-right uh, center former legislator who had attacked Maduro for overseeing soaring inflation and food shortages in the country's first primary in 11 years. Quote, an authoritarian government facing a difficult political situation is always tempted to look around for a patriotic issue so it can wrap itself in the flag and rally support. And I think that's a large part of what Maduro is doing. That's Phil Gunson, a Caracas-based analyst with the International Crisis Group. And from the Midas Touch Network, after he was expelled from Congress yesterday by an overwhelming vote that included 105 of his Republican colleagues, George Washington, Anthony Elizabeth, Taylor, DeVolder, Katara, Julius Caesar, Santos, uncharacteristically left the building at noon without saying a word to the press. If the Harvard-educated former Olympic volleyball player's grandparents were able to survive the Holocaust, he can survive this crisis. That's what Midas Touch writes. Santos remained silent throughout the day and evening after the expulsion uh, vote as people anxiously awaited his, the fabulist's next move. And at 11.48 p.m., he surfaced on Twitter, and the George Santos Revenge Tour began in a Twitter Spaces a Twitter spaces, that's those live Twitter sh show things. Uh, Santos threatened to go scorched earth on his colleagues who voted to expel him. He talked about their insider trading, affairs with lobbyists, missed votes due to drunkenness, and much more. But he didn't name names in that three-hour rant. Now, Santos has started to out them. And it's likely only the beginning. Uh, in his first post, Santos said he will file an ethics complaint Monday against Republican Nicole Maliotakis for insider trading while serving on the House Ways and Means Committee. In his Twitter spaces, he had referenced someone who used their position on that committee to engage in suspicious timed and very lucrative stock trades after receiving confidential information about certain companies. Now we know it's her. Then Santos suggested Maliotakis was a closeted gay person. The difference between you and I, he said, is that I don't live in denial. I'm a proud gay man, and I'm not afraid to say it. Santos then went after Democratic Rep. Uh, Menendez. This is Rob Menendez. And he talked about his father's indictment and said the Ethics Committee should investigate what he knew about his father's illegal, uh, illegal activities. Next up for Santos was Republican Nick LaLota. Santos said he was going to file an ethics complaint against LaLota for not showing at a taxpayer-funded job at the Board of Elections while he was attending Hofstra Law School. Finally, Santos attacked his principal nemesis in New York. That's Michael Lawler. 
And he accused Lawler of engaging in identical campaign finance violations that he's accused of. He alleges that Lawler owns a percentage, owns a percentage of a consulting firm, Checkmate Strategies, and is laundering campaign funds into his own pocket through the firm. Now, Santos is accused of setting up two separate consulting firms in Florida to do the same thing. So he is the new spill the tea party. That's what I call it. So they're all coming after to Mullins, Gates. Come on, spill the tea party. Let's do it. Next up from Simon Rosenberg's Hopium Chronicles, which I love because, as you know, I am the flying hope monkey wrangler of social media. Simon says the economy is remarkably strong, period. Stop the bullshit. Ah, thank you, Simon. Simon says, I've been working with polling and economic data for over 30 years. And it is critical we take a step back and realize just how strong the American economy is right now. Despite COVID, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, OPEC repeatedly raising oil prices, global inflation, unprecedented GOP economic sabotage, war in the Middle East. Despite it all, the American economy is one of is on one of its best runs in decades. The data is clear. Facts are facts. The game to somehow say it is otherwise has become ridiculous and embarrassing for the national media. The red wavy bullshit needs to end. Consider GDP growth was at 5.2 last quarter. U.S. had the best recovery from COVID in the G7. Inflation was zero last month. Wage growth remains a robust 5%. Via Atlanta Fed, wages have been beating inflation for many, many months now. Median wealth is up 37% from 2020 to 2022. Median wealth for 18 to 34-year-olds this period more than doubled. Jobs are more plentiful than any time since the 60s. U.S. has the lowest uninsured rate in history. New businesses being created at record rates. Stock markets on a very good run near record highs. Dow is 18 times higher than it was in 1989. U.S. is setting records in oil and renewable energy production. Gen Z home ownership is matching previous generations. Many cities and states have raised the minimum wage in recent years, creating a much higher income floor for young and poor workers. Biden has erased $127 billion in student loan debt. Biden investment agenda will create growth, innovation, opportunities America, for American workers, especially union workers, for decades to come. And then he has two charts in here from Joey Politano, who writes on Substack about the economy. The first shows how much better the U.S. is doing than its G7 counterparts. The second shows that the monies invested in manufacturing construction have doubled in the past two years. This is from the Wall Street Journal this morning. Goods deflation is back. It could speed inflation's return to 2%. After historic run-up in inflation, Americans are now starting to see something they haven't seen in three years, deflation. To be sure, deflation, that is, falling prices, is largely confined to appliances, furniture, used cars, and other goods. Economy-wide deflation, when prices of most goods and services continuously fall, is not in the cards, but economists say good prices likely have to uh, further to fall which will ease inflation's return to the Federal Reserve's 2% target, perhaps as early as the second half of next year. Prices for long-lasting items like durable goods have fallen on a year-over-year basis for five straight months. In October, they were down 2.6% from their peak in September 2022, according to data released by the Commerce Department. That has helped bring down core inflation, which excludes the volatile food and energy categories, to 3.5% in October, from 55 in September of 2022, as measured by the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index. That's the Fed's preferred inflation gauge. Yes, Simon, but people's lived experiences are telling them otherwise. Inflation has still overwhelmed them. Folks are still really down on the economy, etc. Simon says, I no longer believe any of that to be true. Just as the red wave didn't capture what was going on in the electorate in 2022, I just don't believe people are as down on the economy as conventional wisdom holds. I wrote a long piece about this two weeks ago, giving Americans the permission to love their country again, which I hope you read. Think about it. If folks weren't really down on the economy and angry, why are people spending so much money right now? Why are people so satisfied with their own life work and incomes? Does the party in power, Democrats, keep winning elections across the U.S.? Yes. Does almost every senator and governor have positive approval ratings? 
with the vast majority over 50%. Yes. Is there such a partisan divide on Biden economic job approval? And uh, the economist YouGov last week, Biden's economic job approval was 75% among Dems and 15 to 82%, 15% approval among Republicans. This means the answer to this question is not being driven by lived experience, but by partisanship and exposure to the right-wing noise machine. Hat tip to Paul Waldman for right-wing noise machine. Look at these data from a recent Economist YouGov weekly tracking poll of registered voters and tell me people are really down on the economy. How, oh, over Here's the numbers. How satisfied are you with things in your life today? Satisfied, 64%. How happy would you say you are with your current job? Great, somewhat, great deals are somewhat happy, 80%. Do you consider yourself paid fairly or unfairly? 56% consider themselves paid fairly. Do you think your family income will increase in 2024? 45% say increase, 41% says stay the same. Only 15% said it would decrease. John Byrne Murdoch did a terrific deep dive on all of this in the Financial Times on Friday and found the American consumer sentiment is way out of whack with the econ data and what's happening in Europe. Something weird is happening in America. GDP growth for Q3 was just revised from an already scorching 4.9% to 5.2%. More Americans have jobs than any time in history. But the public is up in arms about economic conditions, with consumer confidences dripping to a six-month low. There really is no pleasing some people, he wrote. With headline indicators in such rude health, we would expect the number of Americans who think they're better off this time than last year to outnumber those who say that they're worse off. But instead, the reportedly worse offs outnumber the better offs by 10 points. And I know what you're thinking, he says. Inflation explains all of this. People hate rising prices and are reminded of them every time they buy something. Inflation's salience drowns out more distant or intangible gains. It's certainly a good theory, but countries all around the world have faced steep inflation, many steeper than in the U.S. Presumably, their consumers are much more pessimistic than we would expect. But no. Extending an original analysis by ex-user uh, Quaintain1, I have calculated expected consumer sentiment for a set of countries based on their underlying economic indicators and compared it to actual sentiment. Relative to the eve of the pandemic, U.S. consumers now appear gloomier than the French, the Germans, and the British. The Europeans all feel about as confident as one might expect based on how their economies are performing. Disproportionate doom seems to be a new American affliction. Read that again. Disproportionate doom seems to be a new American affliction. So what's going on? Last weekend, Focal Data ran a poll asking representative sample of 2,000 U.S. adults whether they thought the economic circumstances had improved or deteriorated in recent years. And the results were startling. Americans are consistently wrong in the negative direction on almost every measure. By huge margins, they believe inflation is still rising. It's falling. That it has outstripped wage growth. Wages have outpaced prices for months. And they have become less wealthy. They've become much wealthier. He then concludes, the most striking responses from our survey concerned the sense of longer-term progress. Large majorities of Americans think the median income today pays for a worse lifestyle than it did 30 years ago, which is demonstrably false, and that poverty is higher than it was a generation ago. It has plummeted. One particularly revealing statistic is that Americans' assessments of their own financial situations has barely budged over the past five years, but their rating of the national economy has worsened steeply. It seems they have decided the vibes are bad, so things must be going badly for most other people, even if not for themselves. Political affiliation is also key to understanding how economic sentiments are separating from economic reality. One question from the Michigan survey asks whether people think now is a good time to buy big household items. When the pandemic hit, Democrats and Republicans alike moved sharply towards not a good time to buy. But just months later, when Joe Biden won the presidential election while COVID-19 still raged, Democrats suddenly declared conditions ripe for purchasing new fridges and freezers. But Republicans did not. It seems the U.S. consumer sentiment is becoming the latest victim of expressive responding, where people give incorrect answers to questions to signal wider tribal political or social affiliations. 
My advice, if you want to know what Americans really think of economic conditions, look at their spending patterns. Unlike cautious Europeans, U.S. consumers are back on pre-pandemic trend line for buying more stuff than ever. And this is interesting because, you know, I like to, instead of looking at polls, I like to look at election results, right? And that feels like what this is here. Instead of looking at these polls of economic conditions, let's see how people are spending. He goes on to say, part of my goal in starting Hopium was to help our family come to understand that a central tactic of MAGA and the right wing was to pump negative sentiment into our discourse, encouraging Americans to feel bad about our country and our democracy and our institutions, our leaders, our economy and each other. There is perhaps no area in our national conversation where they've been more successful in poisoning our discourse than on the economy. That economy, that the economy is bad is the big lie of the 2024 election cycle, which is why since the first day here at Hopium, I've talked about the need for us all to talk up the strong performance of the economy under Biden, to be loud and proud, as we say. For the truth, that is, Joe Biden is a good president. The economy is remarkably robust and the country is better off. The Democratic Party is strong and we keep winning elections across the U.S., we have a very compelling case for re-election. If we put our heads down and do the work, I think we can get to 55 next year. But to do this, we must, must, must learn how to shake off the unrelenting bullshit, counter with boundless truth, data, and passion, and work together to give Americans daily permission to love this great country and each other again. We are better than they say. And when they talk down America, we need to talk it up. Keep working hard. All we are winning and they are not. Simon. Again, go to hopiumchronicles.com. Sign up for Simon's newsletter. You will not regret it. And I haven't done this in a while, but I want to go over a court filing with you line by line in the case of Taylor Taranto. That is the Capitol rioter who was later arrested near Obama's house with guns and ammo in his car after Trump posted Obama's home address on social media. This filing is about the Fourth Amendment, canine dogs, it's fascinating. We'll be right back. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, I have the perfect gift for your loved ones this year. You should get everyone an Aura frame. Aura is a Wi-Fi connected digital picture frame that showcases your photos and videos. I own several. They are fantastic. They use high resolution displays that look amazing. You wouldn't know just by looking at them that they aren't real prints. You have unlimited, unlimited storage capacity meaning you don't have to choose from one memory or the next with the ability to preload as many pictures as you want before it's shipped out from anywhere. And whoever you gift it to can see everything on there and can choose their own favorites and add them using the app as well. They're very easy to use. Just have to plug it in and you're ready to go. And both you and your loved one can upload images directly from the Aura app, making it an easy way to stay connected. It's a thoughtful and personal gift that keeps on giving throughout the years not just during the holiday season, too. It's you can, you know, every time you go on vacation, upload some photos, share. Fo Ugh, it's so these I love these so much, especially for my family back east. Right. I've got a whole big family over in Cleveland. And, uh, you know, we, we we see each other every few years, maybe, you know, I had out there to, to go to a Browns game or a Buckeyes game with them. But to have these frames and just be able to upload photos on the fly from stuff I'm doing here and stuff they're doing it's just, it feels, it makes them feel so much closer. And Aura Frames has been named the best digital frame by Wirecutter and The Strategist. Plus, they were selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. I love Aura Frames and so will you. Give the perfect holiday gift this year. To get $30 off the perfect holiday gift today, visit AuraFrames.com slash Daily Beans and use promo code Daily Beans. These frames sell out quickly though, so get yours before they're gone. That's $30 off their best-selling frames by going to A-U-R-A f-r-a-m-e-s dot com slash daily beans and using promo code daily beans terms and conditions apply hey everybody welcome back i just want to go over this court filing real quick with you before we get to the good news because this i you know i read a ton of court filings and i learned a lot in this one uh this is the government's response this is by the way written by matthew graves he is the dc u.s attorney and this is in the case of Taylor Franklin Taranto. Like I said, he was the January 6th rioter who was later arrested, found near Obama's house uh, with guns and ammo. And this is uh, what happened was Taranto uh, apparently has filed a motion to suppress evidence against him. 
And it appears as though he's trying to say it is fruit of the poison tree, right? Like, you violated my Fourth Amendment rights against search because you used canine dog bomb and gun sniffers to illegally search my car. And so this is the government's response to suppress evidence. They're, they're to not well, their 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 opposition to uh, to Toronto wanting to suppress the evidence in the case, saying you you can't use this evidence against me. You got it illegally. You violated my Fourth Amendment. So it says the United States of America, by and through its attorney, the United States attorney for D.C., submits this response to the defendant's supplemental brief regarding his motion to suppress evidence located during a search of the defendant's vehicle. On October 24th, 2023, the court conducted a suppression hearing on the defendant's motion. So we had the hearing. We pre-briefed the hearing. These are our post-hearing briefs. Um, we And they say... The defendant didn't present any testimony, but offered a couple of exhibits. And the government had Metropolitan Police Department officer David Borman and and offered government exhibits and also had Special Agent Bomb Technician Josh Rothman testify in that hearing. The parties now submit their post-hearing briefing, supplement briefs submitted prior to the hearing. The issues raised by the defendant post-hearing brief appear to largely mirror the issues raised in the pre-hearing brief. As a result, the government primarily rests on the arguments in its pre-hearing response. We're basically going to say the same stuff that we said in our other, you know, in our the brief we filled out before the hearing. However, they say during the hearing, additional information was developed on two topics the government will address in this response. First, the actions of Special Agent Rothman and Officer Borman were undertaken at the direction of their superiors and based on collaboration between multiple police agencies, including the U.S. Capitol Police, the U.S. Secret Service, the Metropolitan Police Department, and the FBI. Second, the government met its burden to prove that Officer Borman's partner canine, Trek, was trained, certified, and his alert was reliable. So there's there's a little bit of a... a th- so they're saying that the... Off- First of all, uh, Tarano is saying that the officers didn't have the right to search his vehicle because they weren't s- told... They were acting rogue or, you know, they they didn't follow their chain of command. Some sort of argument like that. So they talk about all these supplemental facts about how Agent Rothman testified he's a bomb technician he was dispatched by his supervisor to go help in uh, calorama and rothman proceeded to the command post he did everything right right he observed officers from multiple law enforcement agencies including the capitol police secret service mpd fbi fellow bomb technician special agent epley and sergeant bird responded as well from the fbi and the mpd respectively And based on his training as a bomb technician, he described the process for responding to a potential bomb threat and the procedures that are used to render the hazard safe. First, Rothman stated bomb technicians will attempt to use every non-obtrusive method possible uh, that frequently involves assistance from local agencies to conduct a canine sniff. Right. We want to do a canine sniff, make sure there's not a bomb. If there is a bomb, you know, we want to do the most non-obtrusive methods. Okay, And so in the present case, Rothman knew that two canines conducted sniffs on the defendant's vehicle. The bomb dog did not alert, while the firearm dog did. Rothman went on to explain the difference between the two canine alerts and and that the difference didn't surprise him, but merely changed the way the bomb technicians were assessing the vehicle as a threat. Rothman was clear that he still had safety concerns regarding the defendant's vehicle based on the canine alert from the firearm dog. And Rothman described the general procedure in which a bomb technician looks for the, to clear the defendant's vehicle of hazards, which includes a visual inspection of the exterior, a visual inspection of the interior, a physical review of all containers and places where hazard could be located. But Rothman repeatedly testified that his role was to clear the vehicle of hazards and to render it safe for the investigation team. That's his job. They use canines to do that. Now, Officer David Borman testified that he is a police officer and canine handler with MPD, and he's been partnered with his dog, Trek, for about two years. And Borman stated he and Trek have completed certification for the detection of smokeless powder. And and both he and Trek are tested and recertified every six weeks. The pair has never failed a recertification. 
certification records and notes were admitted as government exhibits five and defense exhibit B2. And in June, Borman and Trek were called to Calorama and directed to conduct a sniff of a vehicle by MPD Sergeant Jackson. During the sniff, Officer Borman walked Trek around the vehicle almost two times. Trek alerted for the presence of smokeless powder twice by sitting down. Officer Borman provided Trek with a toy after the alert, which is consistent with the training and certification that both Borman and Trek received. Taranto complained about the toy during the vehicle search and said they were rewarding the dog for a positive alert, so it couldn't be trusted. But the only way that you can prove a canine sniff to be unreliable is by showing that they don't get their certification or that the people who do the certification or training are somehow shoddy or doing a, a shitty job. That's really the only thing you can do about a canine's alert. And they say probable cause existed to search the defendant's vehicle prior to the canine sniff. So your thing is moot here with the dogs. And something I learned, in any event, a dog sniff does not constitute a search under the Fourth Amendment. Even assuming that canine Trek's alert was necessary for probable cause, the defendant's claim fails because canine Trek's sniff did not constitute a search under the Fourth Amendment. The Supreme Court has held that a dog sniff performed to the exterior of a person's vehicle is not a search under the Fourth Amendment. That's in a case called Illinois v. Cabayas. The defendant's supplemental brief raises no new arguments on the issue and cites no binding authority to the contrary. The government therefore rests on the arguments contained in its pre-hearing briefing. And, contrary to the defendant's assertions, Rothman and Borman acted properly on directives from the FBI and U.S. Capitol Police. Investigators from U.S. Capitol Police and FBI had sufficient information to justify a search of the defendant's vehicle. We had probable cause before the canine sniff, and their request for assistance to other agencies, including MPD and the FBI bomb squad, is proper. The defendant argues Officer Borman did not receive sufficient information from MPD Sergeant Jackson to conduct a sniff on the defendant's vehicle. The defendant further argues that the government has not provided enough information regarding Sergeant Jackson's basis of knowledge to support the canine sniff. Even assuming, arguendo, that Officer Borman needed probable cause to conduct a canine sniff, the defendant's argument focuses on the wrong officer. The relevant inquiry is not Sergeant Jackson's basis of knowledge. It's the Capitol Police and the FBI's basis of knowledge that is controlling. In general, when law enforcement assistance between agencies is requested, assisting officers are entitled to presume the requesting officer has a sufficient basis for the requested action. That is a case Whitley v. Warden. He cites it here. And this is just a very fascinating filing. Part, part four is that canine truck sniff was reliable. To the extent the court finds a canine sniff was necessary to establish probable cause to search the defendant's vehicle, the government has met its burden to establish Trek and his alert on the defendant's vehicle is reliable. Florida v. Harris shows us uh, the Supreme Court provided a framework to establish the, reli the reliability of a canine sniff. Specifically, SCOTUS found that the government ordinarily meets its burden showing dog is reliable if the dog is certified. The end. <laughs> and like I said, the only way you can, you know, if a canine officer is certified, it's incumbent on the defense to come forward with evidence either by testifying or introducing facts or expert witnesses to disprove the adequacy of the certification, right? In this case, the defendant didn't call any witnesses, didn't proffer any evidence, whether expert or otherwise, regarding the soundness of the certification program. The defendant now attempts to attack Trek's reliability for two reasons. One, Trek receives a reward when he gives a positive alert and two, in the defense's view, Officer Borman improperly cued Trek when he ordered Trek to detail the vehicle a second time and inadvertently brushed the vehicle with Trek's leash. As to the defendant's first arguments regarding the reward, the defendant has not provided any support for the assertion that providing a reward after his positive alert in this case tends to show Trek was unreliable. In fact, Officer Borman explained that he and the dog are trained using the reward system. And that in providing Trek with a toy after a positive alert in the field, he was following applicable protocols. Borman also explained that he and Trek are both retained and certified, retrained and certified every six weeks in a controlled environment. 
And as for the second argument regarding queuing, the record does not reflect Officer Borman queued Trek to give a positive alert. The defendant argues that because Trek was walked around the vehicle a second time, the court must necessarily infer that Trek was queued. However, this ignores Officer Borman's testimony on this point. Officer Borman explained why he walked Trek around the vehicle a second time. It was because Trek was excited after being let out of the squad car and was not properly detailing the vehicle. Question, why did you decide to run him again? Because he was not detailing the seams on the first go-round. He was not focused. Second, Officer Borman did not adopt the defense's suggestion that the direction a dog to research, uh, and to research an area is without more considered cueing. It's not cueing to have him go around again. To the contrary, Officer Borman specifically stated their circumstances which he will affirmatively have Trek research an area. And Borman unequivocally testified that if Trek does not give a positive alert on a van, he would not continue to walk Trek around the van. When asked by defense counsel if there was theoretically possible for a dog to be cued by telling the dog to research an area, Officer Borman says, I'm sure you could, but the fact that directing the dog to search something again could in some unspecified circumstances result in cueing doesn't suggest that in circumstances presented here. So, as noted, Officer Borman directed Trek to detail the defendant's vehicle a second time after and because Trek was unfocused the first time around. So, government met its burden. We'll see what the judge has to say about this, but for the foregoing reasons... And the reason set forth in the pre-hearing briefing, the defendant's motion to suppress should be denied. I imagine the judge will deny this, but I learned a lot from this filing today, so I figured I'd go over it with you. It was fascinating. All right, everybody, we have a lot of good news to get to. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Good news, good news. And if you have any good news, confessions, corrections, you want to play What the Hell's in That Shell, Opine on the Bovine, What the Heck Wine, Cat Me If You Can, any kind of animal guessing breed and or guess the animal game you want to send to us, please do. Baby photos, I will forward them all. I love them too, but I'll forward them to Dana as well so that she uh, can get a little pick-me-up there while she's on her vacation. Um, If you have a small business in your area that you want to help give a shout-out to, or your small business, if you have your dissertation titles, whoopee stories, um, blanky stories, stuffed animal stories, if you have pod pet tax, I would love to see some pod pet tax. And if you don't, you can send us an adoptable pet in your area. Anything you want to send to us, please do so. Dailybeanspod.com. Click on contact. First up... From Scott, pronouns he and him, just a quick correction, because I'm that guy. It's a quick hit Dana Reed Friday. First, Andy Ogles is the worst, or at least the worst, the, one of the things running. And Dana pronounced his county as Maury, like the TV host, but it's pronounced Murray. I don't get it either, but people there defend it with all they have. So I wanted to let the blue dots there know we have your back. <laughs> Thanks for all you do. I love the show. And the quick hits intro is one of my favorite parts. Thank you. I think it's good feedback. Thank you. Yeah, I like I like getting the quick hits in it. When we started getting so much news, I was like, where are we going to put all this fucking news? <laughs> we got to put it somewhere. Let's do a lightning round in the beginning. All right, next up from Anonymous, she and her. Hello, Leguminati. Today was a binge the beans kind of day. Catching up because I had one hell of a week and I'm so happy to have the beans community to make me smile. Hospital visit via ambulance the Monday before Thanksgiving led to a COVID diagnosis. It was rough started feeling better. And then I had dental surgery on Wednesday and Thursday, my beloved 14 year old poodle Bentley that rescued us 13 years ago, crossed the rainbow bridge. He was the bestest boy and loved the daily beans theme song. It's hard saying goodbye to a friend. I'm thankful for this community that give me, gives me a smile after a crappy few weeks for pod pet tax. Here's Bentley one last time. Oh, anonymous Bentley is a beautiful baby. Sending you so many loves and hugs. I, I, you know, I know (laughs) I lost, I lost my booba kitty after about 15 years. Yeah. And then Bruce Willis left after he died and and Bruce Willis never came home. But now I've got my two tuxedo rescue babies that I found while trying to look for my tuxedo Bruce Willis. And I have a new floofy cat too, the Senator. So What an angel. Thank you for sending me that picture and thanks for the memories. 
All right, Brian, no pronouns. Hello, Leguminati's. Love your show. Th- oh my God, these pugs. Thanks for all you do. Could you please wish my wonderful my wonderful wife, Amy, a happy 50th birthday? Happy 50th, Amy. Woohoo, I'm 50. I, I'll be 50 in January. She worked super hard for our two boys and got her master's in research admin from Johns Hopkins this year. We are so proud of her. I'm taking her to Jamaica for her birthday. No need to guess what our pugs are, but I included a pic of our babies as pet tax. Thank you so much. Look at the puggins. That's a big pug on the left. That sable? That's a big baby. Look at all the extra wrinkles. <laughs> so cute. Oh, happy birthday, Amy. I'm 50. I can stretch and kick. I'm 50 years old. Happy birthday. Max, pronouns he and him. Warning. Incoming German words. Uh-oh. Binas dias, reinas de los frijoles. Note for the producer, this submission is for AG, since it contains German language. I'm writing to let you know how fantastic you all are. The impact of the MSW team performing the duties of free, uh, free and critical journalism cannot be overstated, as was visible in the post about the Colorado Springs Congress seat. That gives me hope. Also, I'm loving the new format with the guests almost every episode, especially Fugle Sang Fridays. And this Friday, it was positively liberating to hear you rant, AG. You're so sharp when you go at it. More please. My news is that I'm almost recovered after a knee surgery from September, so much so that I've booked a winter vacation with cross-country skiing for February with my two kids and my cancer-surviving mom of 72 years. So there's so much to be thankful for right there. Haven't written a thesis or dissertation, but my Facharbeit für Distorte Staatlich Anerkunig aus Erzheia was entitled Spielider im Kita Alltag. Oh my God. Handlungsansatz für die Förderung von Kindern mit Sprachaffogeiten. <laughs> Sprachaff. Sprach, let's see, Sprachhafalgeiten. Wow, German is, German is funny. In lieu of pod pet tax, I sent pictures of my happy place, the small hill at my son's school, which we cross by foot as often as time permits us because it's simply a beautiful way to start the day. Thank you so much, AG and DG and the whole Beans team for all you do. Couldn't imagine start the, starting the day without you in my ears. Oh, look, that is beautiful. I'm waving hi. Hello. Thank you for these photos. Is that sunrise or sunset? It's gorgeous, whatever it is. Thank you very much for that. That was fascinating. I can't believe it. The thing about German is they just, they make words. They just make new words every day (laughs) by shoving words together. They do. It's how they do it. I remember I learned the word for whiteout is like typing fluid correction I think it's, it's, it's like one word. It's, that's what they do. Next up from Lindy, no pronouns. I'm currently a PhD candidate studying structural anatomy and rehabilitation sciences. I thought I would share my working dissertation title, Climatic Adaptation in the Human Nose, Experimentally Investigating Influences of Bony and Soft Tissue Morphology on Airflow Dynamics in Living Humans. I'm actively doing this research and listening to y'all while I do it. Thanks for everything you do. Congrats, Lindy. Let us know when you get that PhD. Next up from Amy, no pronouns. Hello, Beans Queens. Longtime listener. Look at this dog. First time writing in. I want to share my appreciation for all you do to help us make sense of the news before leaving us with a laugh or a smile. This is the first podcast I listen to on my morning walks with my dog. For Pod Pet Tax, I'm submitting Appa. Or Appa? Here he is vibing in the car, unknowingly on his way to the groomer. Adding another clear picture of him, if you want to guess his breed. Kind of obvious, though. Looks like a golden doodle. Absolutely beautiful dog. Amy, let us know if that's a golden doodle. Next up, Funshine. He and him. Look at this man cat face. Hi, everyone. I've been a listener since the MSW days. I have amazing news. My neighbors found my kitty. Oh, this is a girl cat face. My bad. She escaped out of the back door almost three weeks ago. And my partner and I were losing our optimism that she was alive. We got a phone call from a house down the street. They'd seen our flyer and found her in the garage. She was covered in sand and spurs and was super skinny. She's now got a clean bill of health, and we're working on fattening her back up. Oh, my goodness. 
I've attached a picture I took of her post-vet visit, so her fur is still messy. Also, shout out to my amazing partner for keeping me sane through all this. Sunshine? Yeah, I still... I still am... It's been a, a almost a year since Bruce left. And it's tough. It's really hard. It's really, really hard. Look at this beautiful baby. I'm so glad she's back with you. She's got a little calico in her. Of course, she's a girl cat. I love her whiskers. They're very long and they go down. They, they point down. It's very cute. Thank you so much for that. Oh, what a good, that makes my heart so happy, that good news story. And thanks for all of your submissions. Please send your good news in to me, dailybeanspod.com. Click on contact. I'll be back in your ears tomorrow. Don't forget to check out the new cleanup on All 45. Seriously, my favorite episode I've ever recorded of that podcast in the history of that podcast. Pete and I have so much fun in this podcast. You're definitely going to want to check it out. And uh, I'll see you tomorrow. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Take care of your family. Vote blue over Q and bring someone with you. I've been AG, and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.